Welcome to the Eye on the Cure podcast, the podcast about winning the fight against retinal disease from the Foundation Fighting Blindness. Welcome, everyone, to the Eye on the Cure podcast. I'm your host, Ben Shaberman, with the Foundation Fighting Blindness. And I'm very excited to have as my guest for this episode, James Rath, who, if I may say, is really making the most of his vision loss. He's established himself quite impressively as a professional storyteller and filmmaker. And what caught my attention is his role as host, creator, and director for the travel documentary, Blind Spots. It's on a, a streaming service called Curiosity Stream. That's a documentary streaming service. And we're going to talk a lot about Blind Spots in a moment. I've seen many episodes. It's fun. It's informative. It's well-produced. And again, we'll talk about that in a moment. But a little more on James. In addition to filmmaking, he's a podcaster and was an accessibility consultant at PlayStation. And his work is a blend of advocacy and artistry. And he continues to inspire and bridge gaps between the visually impaired community and the wider world. And that makes him a notable figure in both the creative and accessibility realms. And through his work and stories, he aims for his audience to see differently. And in Blind Spots, you definitely do that. So welcome to the podcast, James. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. This is quite the introduction. <laughs> Appreciate it. Well, it's it's uh, very well deserved. You've done a lot of great stuff in terms of filmmaking and accessibility. And one thing I learned early on in my role at the Foundation Fighting Blindness is that everyone with a retinal disease has their own unique visual experience and challenges. Sometimes we talk about these diseases in a textbook fashion and generalize, but everybody's experience is, is their own unique um, situation. And James, you have a condition called ocular albinism, and that's genetic. But can you tell us more about the condition and how it affects your vision? Yeah. Um, so ocular albinism, he can, so it stems from just the overall albinism, which we may have seen in animals, or you may have heard about some people having albinism or being an albino person. And that is having a lack of pigment or melanin in the skin and hair typically, but it's also in the eyes. There are a few different types of albinism, and the one I do have, like you mentioned, is ocular albinism, which means, yeah, I do have, if you look at me compared to, like, my parents or some other folks in my family, lighter skin and, and, you know, lighter hair, but this does mainly impact my eyes and both a uh, vision and it causes another condition, which may not be the same for everyone, but it can. It kind of depends on how uh, your DNA gets coded, but for me, it... It uh, causes my eyes to usually be this like kind of grayish, bluish, greenish color. My vision is quite blurry and very light sensitive. So everything I kind of look at, you know, right now I have a pair of uh, prescription sunglasses on um, to help minimize like, uh, you know, I, I put lights on. I'm very used to being on camera, but sometimes the lights can be a little much. So I got to protect them, but that can also cause other conditions to occur. And there's one that is makes my eyes a little bit more noticeably visually impaired, or at least like noticeably different, and that is a uh, nystagmus, pretty much. Right, and just to go a little deeper into the albinism, 
at the end of the day, the reason you have these issues is because of a lack of pigment mm-hmm. in both your iris and then also in the back of your eye and your retina. And that's correct. that leads to underdevelopment of some of the cells. Yeah, correct. And and that's why like light will come into my eye more powerful than than you know a typical person can handle light in their eye. Makes me a little bit more certainly sensitive to that change of light you know, in a sudden rapid, you know, going from one, a dark room to a light room or outside can definitely, I know anyone can say like, it's like when you go outside of a movie theater and you get hit with like the, the daytime suddenly anyone's ever experienced that, but it's, it feels like a similar feeling just going from one room to another. Right. I think many people have, or at least I experienced that as well. It's, um, very uncomfortable, the the sudden brightness. But you mentioned nystagmus, and I, I want to talk about that a bit. Tell us what exactly nystagmus is. Yeah, so nystagmus is definitely something I maybe even talk about a little bit more because it, it's visual and it's noticeable in my eyes. Some people may not even realize I have albinism. Yeah, that's just kind of the, the truth because my skin isn't as light as some folks with different other types of albinism, but then my eyes are doing this constant song and dance quite literally they they are rapidly involuntarily shaking uh, i know you've seen it probably when last time we chatted and you know i take off my sunglasses but you can notice like my eyes are involuntarily moving back and forth and that is nystagmus and and that could come in many forms for other people it could come in circular motions vertical for me it's horizontal uh and that can sometimes be no, like noticeable from a visual standpoint for you as a person who has it. For me, that can occur. Typically, I have to kind of reset my eyes. Anytime, you know, I'm not in control or I'm not focusing with them, they suddenly like will start shaking and, and it visually comes through into my vision where not only are things overexposed or a little blurry, but now they're shaking and they're getting more blurry and out of focus. And, and I'm even seeing this like almost earthquake effect. So just maybe put into perspective, when I first lived in Los Angeles a few years back, it took me a little while to realize earthquakes were happening because even when I was in the midst of a few of the first ones, my eyes were just shaking and things always just were moving. So I didn't even notice. It took until the more the heavier, like 3.5 or higher magnitude statue to start to notice them. That's pretty funny. I'm sure at the time it wasn't funny, but <laughs> it, it, it's funny. Your yeah. eyes have their own little earthquakes in a way. Correct. Yep. <laughs> and in your documentary series, you do show a simulation of what it's like to have nystagmus. And yeah, uh, that looks challenging to have things in your visual field shaking mm-hmm. on a pretty constant basis. Yeah. It- Definitely, like if I'm sitting right now, it's mainly prominent when I'm when I'm moving, right? Because like it's my brain is trying to you know translate this the motion happening, but then my eyes are also adding a filter on top of that. When I'm sitting, it's it's still a little noticeable, like things don't feel still, but I know I'm still, I know my center of balance. But yeah, it's like when I'm when I'm actually moving, or if I take up an activity like surfing or something, the nystagmus can be a little bit of a distraction. So. I'm sure. <laughs> so obviously you've had ocular albinism your whole life. You're born with it. And tell us about what your journey has been like with this condition from when you were a little kid to growing up into 
moving into adolescence and, and young adulthood. Yeah, it, it it certainly wasn't, I, I'd say it was pretty smooth sailing the first like 10 years. Didn't really have to think about it too much. And growing up there, there was a camp for the blind that my brother and I attended a, a day camp in the summertime. So like we were with folks who were totally blind, who, who had different, more severe conditions at the time. So I, w- I was around folks who had all types of visual impairments growing up. But then it was during the school years where, you know, suddenly I'm the only one. Yeah, like many of the kids from the camp um, are back in school where whatever school you went to, you're probably the only one in your class. And that can certainly be a little weird and different. And at a point, you maybe get a little self-aware about it and start thinking about it. And, and for a long time, no one said anything to me. No one had a any kind of issue. And like, I think people knew that like I, my eyes were different, mine were different. I had bigger papers and dome magnifiers and you know, was taken out of class once a week by a, a visual specialist in, in the Pennsylvania public school system to go like, you know, just check in, check your IEP, do all that stuff. But around maybe like first year of middle school, sixth grade, it's when uh, some ignorant kids started deciding to, out of nowhere, people who I've talked to before, but weren't maybe acquaintances, suddenly decided to start like, you know, poking fun and, and um, kind of saying some hurtful things to, to an 11 year old with, with a visual impairment. And so with, with that, you know, it, it definitely put me in a darker place when overthinking my, my eyes and then realizing, oh, I can't have a conversation with someone. It made me think that that's the only thing people are noticing now are my eyes shaking. And I'll, I'll be honest, like that's when the eye contact was a little hard to keep with me because I, you know, started looking down when talking to people or trying to hide my eyes. And it put me in a pretty dark place where, you know, at a really young age, you know, I got, I was diagnosed with depression. I feel like no 11 year old should be able to be like diagnosed with depression, but unfortunately that's like the reality we, we, we live in. And so I, I searched, you know, high and low to figure out something. And my, my parents came across this experimental surgery that I did have. And it was during middle school where my, my eyes were slowly increasing with the acuity because of this experimental surgery, but it wasn't, it was still very experimental and, and you know, risky for me and my brother. Now, my brother ended up getting it after me and his vision did increase in acuity. It wasn't like good enough to drive, but we can now maybe read the chalkboard from like the first row in class, if not maybe even a, a second row back. Whereas prior, I couldn't even see the chalkboard, you know, even from the first row in the classroom. Now, this pretty much went overnight, though, for me. My brother still kept the vision that he, he had gained from the experimental surgery. But when it came to me, and I guess for some context, my brother has the same condition. It's not as severe as me. You get to know him a little bit in my, my travel show. He's um appears in episode six. We talk about what that's like growing up with two brothers with visual impairments. But going back to, to that, basically first year of high school in the fall, it was like about a month into high school. I woke up one morning, my vision was just kind of blurry again. And, you know, we, we were trying to figure out what was going on, figured it was maybe just my, my, I was tired, but we went to the eye doctor in the week and they did confirm like my vision was legally blind again, whereas prior it was still visually impaired, but it was actually out of the legally blind mark. It was about 20 over hundred if I'm not mistaken, whereas now it was back to 20 for 300, just 
overnight. And we, we discussed maybe doing the surgery again, but again, it was experimental. The research on astagmus, you know, they, they were afraid of maybe doing permanent damage to my eye muscles. It wasn't out of the realm of possibilities, and it was something I maybe keep discussing going into adulthood. But ultimately, I decided, you know, I didn't want to do any permanent damage to my eyes if I could avoid it. And I'd say freshman year was really tough. You know, suddenly I was able to play basketball the year prior. It wasn't great, but there was some depth perception suddenly. So I was playing basketball. I played some football. And in the beginning of this year, I was like playing pickleball, which is very, you know, it's like tennis. It's very small. And that was a kind of an achievement for me sports wise. And that was just gone overnight. I was terrible the next day when I tried playing. So, you know, it made me open up to like sports for the blind goalball that's a whole other whole other story we talk a little bit about that in my travel show um we played some goalball it's a lot of fun but yeah i I had to kind of come to terms with all right well i was born visually impaired and you know everyone has their own idea when it comes to fate or destiny or what's meant to be but i I thought and like well maybe this is how things are supposed to be for right now and so i came to accept it took a little time i'd say probably towards the end of my senior year of high school is when I really was fully accepting it. I was happy by my senior year. And so I crawled out of this dark period of my life, this depression. And I even encountered that bully again from like sixth grade. Funny enough, it was such a big high school. It was such a big middle school too. Like I never encountered him once throughout the whole time that my eyes were, the nystagmus wasn't as noticeable because it was slower and my vision had improved. But funny enough, I get into a class with him the second semester of that year after the vision goes. And he tries, you know, pulling the same thing that he did in sixth grade. And I'm like, you haven't grown up in three years? I literally just confront him. I'm like, you haven't changed. And you're not gonna, are you? And, and all I said was, be better. And I don't know if that struck a nerve with him or not, but it was towards the end of the school year and I didn't care. I just, I didn't talk to him again. Funny enough, he keeps trying to add me on Facebook. Uh, just funny in, in adulthood, I'm like, I left that high school actually after that year. I went to a different one, smaller, something I wanted to do for my own education and to be able to use Apple technology in the classroom. It's a whole other fight I had with a public school. Well, it's it's great that you rose out of your your dark place and and were able to stick up for yourself and you know, at the end of the day, we all know this as adults now, but often the bullies have more insecurity than oh, yeah. the person they're bullying. And I think that that came out for you. And what I think is ironic that you are somebody with, you know, chronic vision loss, and yet you decided to move into filmmaking. And yeah. can you talk about how that happened and, and what kind of movies you began to make? Yeah, so going back even earlier, um, when I was about eight years old, I can tell the story pretty quickly. My origin story, if you will, is my, my the spider bit me in the back of the neck. Kind of. So, um, <laughs> so I just came across this camcorder. My parents filmed everything from birthdays to you know holidays. They weren't ever filmmakers themselves, so... It, the only inspiration I really had, funny enough, was my dad's best friend growing up that he did make Super 8 films with, that he was like, the one who was really passionate was directing those like little films in the neighborhood. He went on to make movies. I called him Uncle, Uncle Jody. And there's also his, his brother, Uncle John, who's worked on other great films like Narnia. And, and, but Uncle Jody worked on the Spider-Man films. And, you know, that Spider-Man is a cult classic that you can just like 
any kid can gravitate towards. So knowing that like suddenly these Sam Raimi films that were coming out were like, oh, I never thought about, but yeah, people are making these movies and there's a process to it. And I was young as well, five, six, seven around the time frame. And so now going to that, it's like I love storytelling and, and superheroes, but then suddenly I come across the camcorder, I turn it on without parents' permission. I don't know where they were. I was in the basement, kind of like being a kid getting into mischief, playing with dad's expensive camera. And I turned it on and, and suddenly I looked through the viewfinder and I was like, what is that? And so I'm like toggling the little zoom dial and I'm zooming into the room and seeing these details and like the, the textures and the furniture and, and the wall and just like things I didn't know were there. And it was, you know, an eye-opening experience, <laughs> quite literally. <laughs> uh, and just knowing that like, there's so much visually to the world around me. And, you know, I'm not someone who's walking around like, I need that in my, my own eye, but it brought a little perspective. It made me realize the cam, camera is just this glorified magnifying glass. And, you know, I have all these magnifiers from school and for homework, but this is just a big one and I can hit record and capture a moment in time and storytell with it. And so everything just kind of clicked. And me and the, you know, I took the camera and neighborhood kids and I just, start going off making films and parents weren't angry with me. They, you know, they weren't mad. I took their expensive camera. I think my dad saw it as like a, oh, he's doing what I did when I was his age. But then I think something clicked more where it's like, he really seems to enjoy this and he's able to see through that lens. And it's like, it's bringing the world into, you know, for, for just a little bit more context, I am a little nearsightedness. So there's a little bit more detail within a like, few inches of my eye. So that's where the viewfinder can come in handy. They got me a camcorder of my very own uh, later on that Christmas. I think the following year after I really showed I was, I was into it. And next thing you know, I created a YouTube channel at the age of 10. And my channel is about to be an adult next year. It just turned 17. So it's, it's been a wild ride. That's a great story. I didn't realize you, you started getting into filmmaking or, or video making at such a young age. But there was a, a particular moment where mm. you kind of achieved some celebrity, if you will. And can you talk about that? Yeah, the, the channel, I, I was posting anything from like my student films to like things I was making on the side, like vlogs or tech things. So I was just playing with every genre and just experimenting and having fun. Eventually, I start niching down a little bit more, you know, answering questions about why my eyes are shaking and you know, more of a, I know you're curious kind of way. And uh, we start building community, start building a little bit of number and tech played a huge role in my life. So I talked about how tech made my education and, and getting into filmmaking accessible for me. And that ends up leading to a short film I, I made called How Apple Saved My Life. And, you know, I get a little bit more detailed into the darker times of my life from the era that we, we had previously talked about. But how like technology really was one, not just a coping method, but almost like a savior for me, because I, I was able to then like do a creative outlet. And I think creativity and the arts are so important at a time when you're going through a dark period and you can't express how you feel correctly to people. And it was through video making that I was able to sort of get that out. And so it was Apple's computers that back in the early 2000s incorporated like proper vision accessibility, but then Apple also made really good video editing software, both for consumer and professionals. And I, I started learning the professional one. So I tell that story and how Apple saved my life. And that 
makes its way, I think, around some Apple Store staff and some Mac blogs in the first couple of days it got released. And this is when I maybe had a smaller, like maybe 2,000 subscriber audience. I not, can't remember exactly, but I wasn't expecting it to get any kind of more traction than being shared on a blog or two. But within four days, it made its way all the way to like Apple HQ. And the story goes that like the VP of marketing at the time apparently showed it to Tim personally in his office. That's what I was told. And Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, ended up tweeting it out. And that was like the first non-Apple produced content that he ever shared on his Twitter. And since then he's opened up to more, but it was like, it was my testimonial pretty much for, you know, the products I make my career possible. And you know, next thing you know, you have CNN calling and, and doing interviews with outlets and, and stay in contact with Apple's PR over the course of the week, but then, you know, Global Accessibility Awareness Day, which is a day in tech where tech companies try to bring more awareness to the tech they produce and make it accessible. That was happening the following year. And for Apple to partake, they ended up inviting a few content creators, including myself, to their headquarters. We get to like do a speaking panel on the same stage that Steve Jobs announced the original iPod, which I thought was like, as like a tech geek myself, like I'm sitting on that stage. That was really cool. But then uh, the following day, I got to sit down with Tim Cook and do a one-on-one -on -one interview that I produced, laughed him up with a mic, and uh, that felt weird. I'm like, this this feels uh, a little out of my element, but you know, I'm setting up multiple cameras and I'm shooting my main camera on like an iPhone, which he really liked. All two DSLRs are getting our headshots, and I got to talk about Apple's history with accessibility and, you know, what they were moving into at the time. So this was 2017. And I think at the time I, I was the first independent content creator or among the first to have that kind of sit down interview with Tim Cook. I wasn't part of a news outlet. It wasn't part of like a group on YouTube who, you know, had their own tech company. So it was, it was quite the achievement for me personally. And that's such a, a great story. And what comes out in blind spots is how passionate you've become about accessibility. And it sounds like your, your relationship with Apple, Apple products really kind of spawned that. And mm -hmm. your passion for accessibility is really infectious. You know, personally, I'm not affected with significant vision loss, so I understand accessibility and the need for it. And we at the foundation really focus on accessibility. But watching your show and hearing your story, I just, my appreciation for it and interest in it is just taken to a whole nother level. And I'm sure that's part of the inspiration behind your documentary series, Blind Spots. But can you tell us a little more about how that came to be? Yeah, certainly. So, I mean, as I moved out to LA as an adult, deciding not to do film school and just figure out this YouTube thing, you know, on my own and, and what I can make of that. What I started doing was creating, you know, just like the How Apple Saved My Life, I started just making content that shared my experiences and stories and, and filling in this, almost like a niche for talking about why accessibility or thinking with accessibility is kind of important on YouTube through my experiences with tech, travel, gaming. And that's when I started getting these companies calling me be like, Hey, can we get you in and like do something? And that's how I like really monetized it. It wasn't, you know, ad revenue. I make very little from, from the videos I make, but it was really the, the opportunities that, that made it. And eventually what I wanted to do through like 
all these opportunity opportunities to, to travel it was like i'd love to highlight this so i came up with this idea for a travel show hosted by a blind dude and like we've seen that on tv i know he certainly hasn't because sorry it's a <laughs> self-deprecating blind joke there so i pitch it around and you know there there's a little interest but nothing bites you know i'm not a celebrity name or anything by the time i'm just a dude the youtube channel like maybe fifteen thousand followers at the time and that's that's very micro you know scopic in terms of like people who come in with notoriety trying to pitch them stuff but then one of the production companies that we talked to that was very like interested gets something across on their desk for a tommy hilfiger ad and they then want to pitch me as a director for it. I'm like, I've never done that, but sure. Okay. I'm directing my own stuff. Those are short films. Those are like little, my own little docs. We ended up getting it, but what it was, was for Tommy Hilfiger's adaptive line of clothing. And it was between me and like some very notable commercial directors. If I'm not mistaken, one of them did the Olympics. So to be 21 and just take that job was kind of significant. This was like a you know, just under a half million dollar campaign for, for Hilfiger's adaptive line of clothing. And we created some amazing branded films from it uh, that ended up winning at Cannes Lions Film Festival, or not Film Festival, sorry, the advertising portion of that. So the advertising festival of creativity. But Cannes Lions, to win three awards for your commercial is kind of a achievement, especially when it's your first one. And to take it from there, you know, little time passes and during the pandemic, there's a lack of travel. There's a lack of uh, people seeing travel content. And we build this relationship with a stream, streaming platform, Curiosity Stream. And we take the concept to them a couple years later. And, you know, I'm like, I know different ideas. Like, there's a Netflix budget, and then there's like a more niche streaming platform budget. But they knew that, like, I created YouTube content and that we can do this with that style but then with a doc crew and have this almost like mix of a genre where it's that first person i'm talking to the audience with my own camera and i'm like an on-screen camera guy but then i also have a camera guy and so you get to jump perspectives and i get to show you things in my pov and like edit that to look like nystagmus that's sort of the story of how this whole opportunity for a travel show came to be and i have to say when I reached out to you to do this interview and I learned about blind spots. I thought, well, as an interviewer, I should really watch an episode or two of the show just to learn about it. And I really didn't have big expectations. I, I didn't really know you well and, of course, didn't know much about the series. But after an episode or two, I really got pulled in. It's really well produced. You have a really natural and effective way of connecting with the audience, at least with me as an audience member, I, I felt really drawn to your kind of chill, self-deprecating, humorous personality. And it, it's just a lot of fun, very entertaining. And at the beginning of each episode, as you're explaining to people in the intro who you are, you say, I was born blind legally. <laughs> I, I love that kind of play on your, your legal blindness, but I think that kind of sets the tone mm -hmm. for the episodes. And you don't go over the top with drama or hyperbole. You're just kind of a guy who has some vision issues traveling through these different locales. And 
I guess a question I have is accessibility is a really important theme through all your destinations, whether you're in LA or London or Switzerland, you're really checking out the accessibility of these different places. And did you go in intending to do that? Yeah. I mean, so with episodes, we, we always did a little research ahead of time, but there were surprises pretty much on every corner. There's things you just can't plan for when it comes to travel. And, you know, whether it was running into a barrier or some inaccessibility for sure, we certainly have a couple moments when we make light and like brush it off. But there are some things that really surprise you when you actually get like hands on and, and experience it. I mean, Japan, one of my favorite places and, and love those episodes because Japan is such an interesting place. You know, we talked to a few blind folks with from Japan, a few locals, and you know, you 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 kind of feel it when you get there, especially when you have a disability. There there is almost this um everything feels accessible to some extent. Different for wheelchair users for sure. Um, as in anywhere like New York, but when you have a white cane, this is coming from that perspective. The sidewalks in places like Tokyo, Osaka, even parts of Kyoto, which is a very traditional city, but there is some modernization to it. They all have infrastructure, uh, like Tenji blocks, but also these like tactile lines that help guide you down the street and keep you like in a straight line. And then you find those in like train stations and that's just kind of everywhere. But then there is a cultural, almost like a, from what I've been told from blind folks who are local there, a little bit of a culture of shame if you, you know, are proud to have a disability or try to be, or at least just take pride in going out about your day and trying to contribute to society. But you happen to, to maybe look a little different, you know, there's almost like this, a culture of like, everyone's just got to fit the mold or fit into a box. And there's a lot of folks and advocates who are trying to like break that stereotype within their own society, but also like reach out to an international audience, whether they're putting themselves out on YouTube or they are blind and they're breakdancing on Instagram and get in contact by Justin Bieber's backup dancers to do the Paralympics closing ceremony. We meet some incredible people and I don't want to spoil much more of that, but you definitely do. You do a little research, but you definitely come across some surprises. Like I was in the train stations in Japan and I wasn't expecting, but there are fully braille tactile maps of the train stations on the wall. So you just go up to it. The Tenji blocks and lines will lead you to it. And I'm suddenly feeling the whole train station. I'm like, I now know where I am because I can feel that pin feels a little different, but there's a map here. And I, I now understand the infrastructure of the building I'm in. And it's, it's wild to like be able to map it out in your head when you can't see it. It's ironic that Japan culturally may may not embrace people with disabilities, but yet it it's a very accessible place. I yeah, it's ironic. It definitely is. I ironic uh, indeed. Another iPod there for you. Yes, there you go. One thing I really enjoy about the series is you always take us to great places to eat. <laughs> Lots of good food. <laughs> I like to eat. Lots yeah. of good close-ups on the food. It always makes me hungry. But I think one of the things that you really do a great job of are finding these really cool and interesting personalities, many of whom have vision loss and have done some really remarkable things. One of my favorites was when you were in London, you went to this art museum that was part of the Welcome Trust, I think. Oh, and the Welcome Academy, or sorry, the Welcome Gallery. Welcome Gallery, yeah. that's right. Yeah. And 
you were talking with this blind person, Carmen Popalia. Mm -hmm. He's a non-visual artist and he sounded really cool and everything. And one of his, he does performance art. And one of his things was he replaced his cane with a marching band. <laughs> yeah. And I just laughed out loud. He's walking <laughs> down the street with a marching band. And I just thought that was so funny. Brilliant guy, like just super creative, interesting dude. And he's like a traveling artist and he's got, he's a dad too. And like, you know, his partner is with him and, and very supportive of what he does. And it's such an inspiring guy with the work that he's doing and putting out there in the advocacy. We were very lucky with so many of the guests that we, we, we had. And, you know, some folks I, I'd love to have uh, included scheduling conflicts and, and whatnot. So maybe there's opportunity in the future, but either way, we, we had an all out cast, you know, from visually impaired folks who are literally helping to make movies more accessible with workshops and, and training to blind surfers who are literally the voice of Fox Sports. <laughs> and going beyond that, it's like break dancers and, and Carmen, who, who's this incredible artist. And it's amazing. I, I'm really glad I got to highlight so much of our community and like the entrepreneurs who are blind cooks and, and making barbecue out of a food truck and, and happen to be visually impaired and blind man barbecue, fantastic steak and, and food. If you ever get a chance to go to Austin, Texas, highly recommend it. And, and then there's musicians, of course, you know, there's the stereotype that blind, blind people can all play music. We can, and it's such a great skill and talent. When you have someone like Deed Madness uh, available to do an interview and, and, and play a set, you, you have to go. It was such an honor to be able to meet so many incredible people and, uh, learn so much from them and their experiences. Right. It's very humbling, whether you have vision loss or not, some really great personalities. And I want to let our listeners know that, again, the show, I think it's 10 episodes, is mm -hmm. Blind Spots, and it's on a service called Curiosity Stream. And I think that's curiositystream.com. Correct, I'm... yeah. And there's an app. There's audio descriptions through their right. app and through... The website as well i will note there you want to watch it through the app with audio descriptions just because you can access curiosity stream through amazon prime and like apple tv and maybe a few other services that have like third-party additional subscriptions which is great i love the implementation and the fact that i can search amazon prime and find my face or the apple tv like library of movies and and suddenly i'm coming up i'm like that's great just know though the audio descriptions and I, I tried to like, hey, is there a way to get this over to your other platforms? But if you do want to watch with the AD, just be sure you're watching it through Curiosity Streams like native app. Right. Good point. And I'm proud to say that the Foundation Fighting Blindness provided support for the audio descriptions. And that's always yes. fun to see the Foundation <laughs> logo at the beginning uh, of each show. Yeah. Thank so, you so much for that. On behalf of the Foundation, we're very privileged and proud to be a part of your series. So to finish off here, I wanted to hear more about where you're headed because you're mm -hmm. relatively young. Aren't you like 28 or 29 if I can reveal that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll be 28 next week. See you think? 27. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, happy birthday. This will probably air right around your birthday. But you've You've really accomplished a lot at a relatively young age. And despite having a visual challenge, you've really made the most of it. Do you have, and excuse the pun, a vision for where you're going 
over the next few or several years? Do you have like a personal mission? So I'm I'm always open to opportunities. And I think as you'll come to learn with my show, it's like, I'm gonna go with the flow kind of guy where, you know, if, if something were to, to arise, I'm like, let's just go do it. I can do it with a little less planning. That That's it's all right with me. And so ideally, like what I envision personally is I'm very passionate about YouTube and creating short form content and, and long form on YouTube. So creating self-produced content is going to be my focus right now. And I'm always open to hosting opportunities and, and working with other companies and brands to, to create content together. And, and so my inbox is always open for things like that, but I'm going to be sharing, you know, you'll get the same feeling from the show as you will in like my YouTube content. You know, I, this past year, I've been able to put out a few things between I blindfolded myself for 24 hours because this is something that folks with sight wanted to try to emulate and figure out and they realized they don't know how to do anything blind. So I'm like, all right, I'll do the same challenge. But as someone who grew up learning about accessibility, I'm going to show you how I call my friends, how I get work done on Twitter, how I'm playing a video game blindfolded for 24 hours, how I take my white cane and go for a walk for a for two miles outside my home. And I'm, I'm just sitting there recording. I got cameras running 24 seven in my, my home. And then beyond that, I stayed in Japanese capsule hotels. These, you know, almost like space age feeling uh, hotels for seven days straight while in Japan. And this was post-show. So if you still are craving a little bit like the show bonus content that I put out when I extended my stay in Japan. And uh, then I also climbed Mount Fuji. And there, there's a longer version of this film already out, incorporates gameplay. And so if you're into Pokemon specifically, I did something a little bit different where I play this game that takes place in the game in Japan. And I'm playing it at all these locations in Japan until I get to the final dungeon, which takes place on Japan's tallest mountain. And I'm playing the game and finishing it on the mountain in the off season in like snowy, windy conditions. And it's, it's kind of wild, but I, I encounter other hikers who are familiar with Pokemon who are, you know, native Japanese people. And they're like looking over my shoulder, watching me play this final battle. And they're like excited. And like, there's a language barrier, but they're, they know what's happening on the screen, even in English. And it's, it's so exciting. And Pokemon was like a big thing for me as a child to like get into gaming. So it was kind of like a love letter to my childhood. And I'm releasing a different version of that whole thing that just focuses more so on the climb of Mount Fuji uh, this, this coming week. So that anyone who's like, not familiar with Pokemon doesn't need to be or care to be. If you just want to see a blind dude climbing Mount Fuji, you'll get that as well. Well, that's such a cool story. Thanks for sharing that. And James, thanks for taking so much time out of your day to to talk about your experience growing up and all the great work you're doing for accessibility and the great documentary series you've launched and Again, you're young. I'm excited to see where you go in your career. And as a fellow movie geek, I'm I'm <laughs> even more interested in, in seeing what happens as you move forward. So thank you. It's great having you. And I hope we can meet someday in person. It would be Absolutely. a real pleasure and, and privilege. So thank you. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate it. And listeners, thank you as always for joining Eye on the Cure. It's great to have you and we look forward to having you back for the next episode. See you later. This has been Eye on the Cure. To help us win the fight, please donate at foundationfightingblindness.org.